Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. Man, we've been covering some pretty heavy topics lately. I kind of need a break. A palate cleanser of sorts. What should we cover? Should we cover werewolves? Nah, I've already done that one. How about Bigfoot? Everyone loves Bigfoot. No, I've done that one too. Let's see what we have going on in the news. Hmm, what do we have? What do we have? Proof of alien life presented to Mexico's Congress by self-proclaimed expert. Now we're talking. Tonight, we're talking about aliens. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. goblins. Despite what the intro may have sounded like, we're not really going to talk about the Mexican aliens, or I guess in this case they would be the Peruvian aliens, because that is their country of origin, supposedly. Frankly, they look like a bad papier-mâché replica of E.T., so we're not going to get into that. Instead, we're going to take a trip north. Way, way north. Tonight, we are covering the book, Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden, by Fred Anderson. I first heard about this book about a year ago on Where Did the Road Go, when Fred was a guest on there, and he was talking about what he was working on, the writing process, things like that. 
Never in a million years would I have guessed in less than a year's time I would actually be friends with the guy. And that actually works out in your favor too. Because in the next episode, I will be interviewing Mr. Homo Satanus himself. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. First, we have to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Soul Rising Studios. Your contributions help pay server cost, purchase reading material, and helps me buy industrial-level quantities of turtle wax for the Flatwood Monster's skirt. You'd think the green paint would help seal that in a bit, but nope, nope, it just keeps getting rusty. If you too would like to help keep Braxy's Heine shiny, please contribute to the Esoteric Archive at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. Northern Lights is published by Beyond the Fray Publishing. You know them from books such as Just Another Tinfoil Hat, the now infamous The Meme Humanoid, and a book that I plan to cover in the near future, Tracking the Stone Man, West Virginia's Bigfoot. In the introduction, Fred states, I've always been a weird kid. It may be the result of escaping into a world of imagination when my own and my family's life was, to say the least, complicated and downright terrible at times. So the idea of something mysterious out there, the unknown and unexplainable, attracted me a lot more than any earthly matters. I was, and still am, one of those chubby little nerds with glasses who always hung around the esoteric shelves at the library, looking for new and old books about mysterious disappearances, UFOs, spontaneous combustion. It was so present in the stuff I read, I thought it was the most common cause of death for a while. Ghosts and other things not normally respected or believed in our normal world. It didn't help that one of the librarians, an elderly lady with a strict, old-fashioned hair bun, told me children disappeared in the dimly lit basement of her library. Man, does that sound familiar to anybody else? I guess it's nice to know that I'm in good company. Anyway, back to the intro. With Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden... I would like to bring out the weirdness of this cold, dark country in a book where I will share some incredible stories, many of which have never reached outside of Sweden. My focus is on humanoids and UFOs, but I promise that there will also be other kinds of high strangeness between these pages. I admit, I am more interested in the experiences told by the witnesses than in physical proof. I have not ventured out to do any field investigations, nor focused on trying to find natural, more logical explanations, though I speculate a bit in some of the chapters. It's all about the stories. See, that's what I like most about books like this. They're not trying to prove or disprove anything. They're simply going out and archiving the story from the witness. As much as a lot of UFO researchers hate to admit it, this is all about folklore. 
These are the stories we tell about ourselves and those around us. So it's always a pleasure when you find a book and an author who embraces that, who acknowledges that that's what is going on. It's not about belief or disbelief or proof or evidence. It's simply, tell me what happened here. Because of that, the best way to describe this book is to say that it's Keelian. It's a lot like how John Keel used to write, although, admittedly, Fred is far more coherent in his thought process. It's part gonzo, part archival, and entirely entertaining. So let's jump into some of the stories. Our first story is one that actually happened to Fred himself. It doesn't directly involve aliens, but instead involves a phenomena that is generally associated with them, and that is the Men in Black. Now, because this is technically a witness statement, I'm going to read the very first part of this chapter directly from the book. I could almost sense him, the man behind me. Well, first I saw him. He was passing me in the opposite direction, and there was a slight delay in his movements. Like he was checking me out, not in a flirtatious way, more like surveillance. I was walking up from the store to my apartment, not expecting anything out of the ordinary. But the notion of the phenomenon, Men in Black, from now on called MIB, was on my mind at the moment. When I turned around, feeling his eyes burning on my neck, I saw him standing in the middle of the pavement, looking up at me. It's better to ignore, I thought and continued up to the left, over the street, and among the tall pines facing the apartment house. For some reason, I looked behind me again, and there he stood on the path, covered with pine needles. The mysterious man wore a jacket with a hoodie, covering his face with shadows. He stood there frozen, watching me, which gave me chills, and I hurried inside and locked the door behind me. I can't really say that I blame Fred in this instance. I mean, in the best case scenario, this is just a weirdo being a weirdo, and even then I would still probably lock the door behind me. But that's not where this story ends. Later that day, Fred noticed that his cats were acting really, really weird. And if any of you have cats, you'll know that this is something that they don't normally do. This is a behavior that's normally associated with dogs. So anyway, he was at home alone doing some writing when he noticed that the cats were all looking at the door with rapt attention. And that's when he noticed that the doorknob was slowly starting to turn in a way that someone was trying to get in without making a lot of noise. So Fred crept up to the door looked through the peephole, and he saw that same man. Now, he admits in the book that what he does next is completely against all common sense. So he grabs the doorknob, wrenches the door open, and says, Are you looking for someone? 
Now this is where the encounter turns into something out of a psychological horror movie. The guy doesn't move. He just stands there, stares at Fred, and says, Loam. Fred's reply is, Oh, there's nobody by the name of Loam here. Goodbye. And he closes the door. But he looks out the peephole to see what's going on. And this guy just stands there, almost confused. He lingers for a little bit, and eventually he walks away. These weird encounters continued for almost a month afterwards. At one point, the guy even rang the doorbell in the middle of the night, and when the door is answered, he simply repeats, Loam. There's even a few instances where it's like something out of a vampire movie. Fred and his husband were standing on the balcony of their apartment, looking down at the street, and under a streetlight, here's this hooded figure staring up at them, completely motionless in the dark. Another time, they found this guy on a neighboring balcony, staring down at their door. Again, he was in the dark, completely obscured by shadows, and they only noticed him because they saw the reflection of his eyes. And again, every time they confronted him, his only reply was, Loam. Now it seems like after a month, this guy just disappeared. They didn't see him, they didn't hear him, and nobody else really reported his presence. Much later, after all of this died down, Fred was reading The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, which contained a cipher that apparently Aleister Crowley used in his Book of the Law. The basic idea is that words are not what they seem. You have to punch this word into the cipher, decode the letters, and you'll get a whole new meaning compared to what was written on the page. So Fred was toying around with this cipher, and he was thinking, Oh man, what was that weird word that guy was saying? The, the hoodie guy? Oh yeah, loam. So he punches that into the cipher. And what he gets back are words like soul, crawl, shadows. If you haven't noticed yet, the cipher is not a direct letter-for-letter -letter translation. It's not perfect, and it's open to interpretation. That said, the translation was enough to really, pardon the pun, make Fred's skin crawl. So he starts to do some basic googling. Loam is an actual word in the English language. Now it's all pretty mundane. It's a word that talks about a type of soil. It's made up of sand, silt, and clay. But it also comes from a much older word. It comes from the word lamb, L-A-M. That's where things get really strange, because again, it takes him back to Aleister Crowley. In 1908, Aleister Crowley channeled an entity known as lamb during his so-called Amalantra workings. Now, this is all pretty weird, but why is it in a book about UFOs? Well, because Lamb was gray, featureless, had a huge head, and black almond-shaped eyes. 
even though he presented himself to Crowley as an otherworldly entity, his depiction is that of the classic alien gray, a depiction that we wouldn't see again until Whitley Strieber's book Communion. To conclude this story, I want to read one more statement from Fred. So what the heck is all of this? Beats me, but one thing the MIB phenomenon leads to is paranoia. The next story could easily be debunked if it took place in a modern setting. Instead, this took place in 1931. So a lot of the technology that modern debunkers would cite in their explanations didn't exist at this time. Helgi Eriksson was working as a farmhand outside of the town of Eslov. He was 23 years old, and it was early January. He had just finished visiting with a friend at a nearby farm, and he was walking home under the dim light of a pale moon. Coming in the opposite direction, he saw about a dozen assorted men. Now that in itself is not unusual, maybe a little unnerving, thinking that it could be a gang or something like that. Except, none of these men were over a meter tall. For my Americans in the audience, that means none of these guys were over three feet tall. According to the witness, they all had beards and wore, quote, some sort of hat. They passed by him close enough that he could see their faces, and he described them as tough and cruel-looking. To him, they marched as if they were soldiers, and they were carrying on a conversation in a foreign language that he couldn't identify. After they passed him, they turned sharply and marched directly into a field. There, they marched towards a blue-white light that suddenly appeared. It was surrounded by fog, and instead of walking around it as if it were a vehicle, they walked directly into it. Once the last of them entered that light, there was a loud swooshing noise, a strong chemical smell, and they were gone. Helgi was quoted as saying, These weren't any normal humans. This was something from another world. To the casual reader, it would sound more like an encounter with dwarves or even gnomes. But as we heard in Passport to Magonia, the correlation between fairy encounters, troll encounters, and modern alien encounters, the lines are really blurred. In fact, it's kind of at a point now where a lot of people are questioning if the two entities are not the same phenomena. For this next story, we're going to jump ahead in time to 1977. Our witness, Kurt Nielsen, was practicing with the shortwave radio in his car. The spot where Kurt was located has a lot of hills and valleys, and between that and the trees, it really affects how the radio works. So if you're in the lower valleys, you're not going to have as good a reception as if you're at the peaks where there tends to be radio transmitting towers. Now, Kurt was in communication with one of his friends while this was all going on. He was getting a lot of interference, a lot of static. So he decided that he would drive up to one of these mountain peaks where he knew there was a radio transmitting tower. There were two very strange things going on during this encounter. 
The first is that typically the closer you get to the broadcasting tower, the better your reception is. Instead, Kurt found that he was having pretty uniform bad interference. The other interesting thing is that typically, if there's interference on the radio transmission, both parties will hear it. Now, the person that Kurt was talking to, they didn't hear any interference at all. In fact, Kurt was broadcasting to them perfectly clear. But Kurt, on the receiving end, he had no shortage of static. Because he was still receiving quite a bit of interference right next to the tower itself, Kurt decided to end the transmission. With nothing else to do, Kurt decided to sit in his car right there on the hilltop and look around for a little bit. That's when he noticed a bright blue light down in the ravine in front of the hill. At first, he didn't think much of it. But the more he looked, the more interesting it became. In Kurt's report, he stated, quote, It was some kind of machine with a dome on the top and a few meters in diameter. In front of it stood three figures dressed in space overalls. End quote. That doesn't sound too strange. Except he goes on to describe the craft floating slightly above the ground. And these three figures, well, they were only about two feet tall. This scene completely boggled Kurt's mind, and he wanted to get a better look at them. So he turns on the car headlights, and everything vanishes. No craft, no entities, absolutely nothing. I'm sure Kurt was a little disappointed at this point, so he turns off his car and his headlights. And they're back. The craft the figures, all of it. Well, that was just too weird for Kurt. He turned his car back on, turned around, and got out of there. He had barely gone 50 meters down the road when he had to slam on his brakes because there, in the middle of the road, were these three two-foot-tall entities. The entity in the middle was holding a spade-shaped object, it made a gesture with this object, and suddenly, Kurt's car just shut down. The engine, the lights, the radio, everything. Kurt just sat there for a few moments. When nothing happened, he slowly reached down, started his car, and put it in reverse. When he was about 10 meters away, he turned on his headlights, and again, all three of the figures vanished. That was all the permission that Kurt needed, and he got out of there as fast as humanly possible. A few days after Kurt reported his incident, investigators arrived on the scene. They found that someone in that location had taken samples of moss and soil, but they also found footprints. Child-sized footprints. As unsettling as that last encounter was, it didn't really come across as threatening. This next one, though, this next one is a little bit scary. It all begins on March 23, 1974, in the small community of Valentuna. 
Hilevi Anderson was at home with her three children when she decided to call her parents just to check on them, you know? And they didn't answer the phone. She couldn't get through for some reason. That was a little bit odd, but they lived close by, so it wasn't too much trouble to pack up her three kids into the car and drive over to visit. While they were driving, Hilevi noticed that there was a very strange, very powerful light above and behind her car. It seemed to be following her. After a short time, it shrank to what she described as the size of an orange, and then it shot straight up into the sky. When they arrived at her parents' house, her father came out onto the porch to greet them. He said that the telephone was out of order and there was some sort of strange interference on the television. Hilevi told her father about the weird light that was following her. And that's about when he pointed across the road and said, A light sort of like that? For a few minutes, they watched this light. It was strong and bright. But that's not the strange part. The strange part was that there was a smaller light hovering around it, zigzagging across the sky. Even more bizarre, there seemed to be three beams of light. But they weren't coming from the ship. They were coming from the ground, pointed towards the ship. That's about the time that all the children started screaming. Halevi's daughter even threw herself on the ground and refused to move. As if reacting to the sound that the children were making, the ship once again shrank to the size of an orange, shot straight up into the sky, and disappeared. When everything calmed down, it was decided that Halevi should go check on her brother, who lived close by, since the telephones were out and they simply couldn't call him. There were no noticeable incidents while Halevi drove from her parents' house to her brother's, but once she got there, her sister-in-law met her on the front porch. She asked her, What was with that strange light that was following you as you were driving up the road? Now at this point, her brother Hilding became involved, and he was super curious about what this was. So together, they decided to go investigate. The way it's written in this book, I started to question if Halevi took her children with her, and then later on it's pointed out that yes, her children were in the car the entire time. So just wait, this is going to get really weird. Hilding got in his own car, and he took point on this. He began driving down the road with Halevi in the car behind him. They didn't get very far before Hilding saw what he describes as a hat-shaped object floating above his vehicle. Soon after that, they noticed a larger oval-shaped craft floating about 30 feet above the ground in front of them. It's unclear if Halevi noticed the hat-shaped object above her brother's car, but she noticed a small glowing orange sphere that was, you know, zigzagging back and forth. At some point in their travels, both the larger craft and that orange sphere began to hover above and behind Hilevi's car. The light from these objects was so intense that it actually illuminated the interior of the vehicle. So Halevi pulled over. Now that the vehicle has stopped, one of Halevi's daughters tries to leave the car. In a later interview, the girl explains that she tried to leave, 
because something was telling her to go outside. With their car doors locked, they watched these lights for about another 40 minutes. One of them hovered above a barn, moved off into the distance, and eventually simply vanished. The next day, Halevi called the police to report her incident. They were obviously quite skeptical. They took down her contact information, a brief statement, and really, that's about it. Unsatisfied, Halevi then called the Swedish National Defense Research Institute. Again, they were super skeptical, but they also took her information and recorded the incident. In a move that comes right out of Project Blue Book, they suggested that what she saw was merely a balloon. By this point, Halevi is obviously quite frustrated. But all of that was about to change. Soon after, she got an interesting phone call. It was the police. They were calling to apologize. Over the course of two days, they had received 76 separate reports from 31 different witnesses. For those of you who are saying that the numbers don't quite add up, that means that some of these witnesses had three or more encounters over a two-day span of time. One witness, 90-year-old Carl Johansson, actually thought the sun had risen early because the light from the craft was so bright. When it was all said and done, the Valentuna UFO flap lasted for a total of 43 days. There were multiple witnesses and countless reports. As with most incidents of this type, there are still no answers. The Swedish National Defense Research Institute did investigate Valentuna after all these accounts. Although officially in the paperwork, it was declared Operation S, a military exercise, not an investigation. Clearly, the UFO phenomena has a lot of similarities no matter where you exist in the world. And to some degree, that's kind of reassuring. It means that we're not isolated. We're not alone. Earthlings, we're all kind of in this together. I know a lot of you are probably cringing when I say the word earthlings. And that's okay. I'm doing that for fun. And really, that's kind of what this book is. It's not simply recording folklore. It's about having fun with the phenomena. For a lot of us, this is a hobby. And if you don't have fun with your hobby, why do it? Really, that's why I enjoyed this book so much. It's fun. It's pleasant to read. It's not wacky or slapstick or silly. Fred just does a good job of reporting on what happened and then his reflections on that case. It's in these reflections that you get a sense of his dry sense of humor. It causes the book to have this ebb and flow of narrative. You have periods where there is a no-nonsense story being told. And then you get these witty insights from Fred himself. I really don't know how else to describe it, but 
you really just have to experience it for yourself. So go to your local bookstore, grab yourself a copy of Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden by Fred Anderson. If you don't have a local bookstore, I'll post a link in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and now on Threads. If you like what you just heard and think, man, I would buy that guy a beer, or a cup of coffee, or something like that, please consider going and joining my Patreon. You can actually get extended episodes for as little as $3 a month. And frankly, that's cheaper than a cup of coffee at this point. Those of you who are already Archive members, stick around. We're going to take a look at Fred's ideas behind the Men in Black phenomena. For the rest of you, until next time, if it isn't already, make it weird. if the men in black were as smooth and collected as Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith in the men in black movies. But they're not. They're awkward.